town signs are revealing sometimes, if not amusing, and I have some favorites to get us going. Gettysburg, South Dakota, where the battle wasn't. Peculiar, Missouri, where the odds are with you. Might be my favorite. San Andreas, California, it's not our fault, yeah. Manhattan, Kansas, the Little Apple. Gravity, Iowa, we're down to earth. Leavenworth, Kansas, how about this one? How about doing some time in Leavenworth? <laughs> Phoenix, Oregon, the other Phoenix. Wah, wah, wah. Knox, Indiana, where opportunity knocks. I'm going to skip one to keep it classy. Hershey, Pennsylvania, the sweetest place, sweetest place on earth. Weed, California. We'd like to welcome you. I'm not sure what the slogan would have been or was for first century Corinth, but it could have easily been Corinth, where sinning is winning. And I know I'm not too far off the mark because I'm guessing about first century, but I do know historically in the fifth century BC, the expression to Corinthianize meant to commit some form of sexual immorality. Famous for sexual immorality, Corinth was. Uh, it was also famous for other things. It was famous because it was a place where tremendous commerce took place. People from all around the known world were in and out, some staying longer than others. But it was quite the hub, so it was quite the place on earth at the time. But not only that, it was quite the place for sexual sin. Infamous, if you will, for such things. Well, what's interesting is we think of Corinthians and we immediately think, oh, famous because they're in the Bible. We, we, we not only have one book of Corinthians, we have first and second Corinthians. So famous today because there are books of the Bible named after them. Famous today because of the gospel, but they used to be famous for sexual immorality. And I want to encourage you with that. Today in Acts 18, we're going to watch the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ go to the one of the most debased places on earth in the first century. And the gospel's going to go there, and the gospel is going to produce great fruit, and people are going to be converted, and the gospel's really going to take hold there. So again, today, we think of Corinth as, I'd like to go there because what a great place for the gospel it was. And then I want you to also be thinking, as we're looking at Acts 18, I want you to be thinking about the world that we live in. As we struggle with all kinds of crazy immorality becoming not only acceptable, but normalized and celebrated, we might be thinking, how in the world might we ever find hope in addressing this? Well, I hope that we can keep our minds on straight as Christians and know that regardless of the sin, the solution ends up being the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of how debased things might be or become. Indeed, everyone needs a savior and his name is Jesus. So let's be encouraged today as we see what happened a long time ago and certainly be encouraged that it certainly could happen and Lord willing will happen again. So Acts 18 is our text. As we look at the passage, just keep some, keep, keep some things in mind, uh, other than what we've already talked about. Uh, notice there are going to be a lot of people mentioned by name. That's 
good for, uh, it's important for a couple of reasons. One, it's a historic, na- historical narrative. So we're not reading a fable here. We're not reading something made up. Luke is acting the historian, if you will, uh, as one. And so he's giving the details. Well, also notice that as the apostles are leading the charge of taking the gospel to this city and to this city and to that city and other cities like Corinth, they're not doing it alone. They're doing it with a lot of help by other individuals, men and women. And so that's good to see as well. Also notice as we work our way through Acts 18, notice, uh, look, be on the lookout for the providence of God. So we're paying attention to the people, but also the providence of God. And what we mean by that when we say providence as Christians, you see God is working through circumstances, ordinary circumstances, guiding and directing, opening this opportunity, closing that opportunity. But he's he's making sure the gospel goes where he wants it to go, uh, even though it might not look like things are succeeding on the face of it. It might look ordinary. It might not look miraculous. We will definitely see the hand of providence in here, God's hand of providence. And then also, as we look at this, be be struck, be encouraged, be reminded of the fact that the gospel doesn't change. It doesn't get altered. It doesn't get modified. Same gospel, and some people love it. Same gospel, some people hate it. Same gospel, some people say, I'd like to know more, just like we saw in Acts 17. So be encouraged, I hope. I hope you're going to be encouraged by these things. Acts 18 verse 1 says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, modern Turkey, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the Roman emperor, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And we'll say more about Aquila and Priscilla in just a little while when we see them again. Uh, well, let's just go ahead and read the, the ver- rest of verse 2 and 3 and then a couple comments. And he went to see them, Priscilla and Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade. So at the time, Claudius wants all the Jews kicked out, wants them removed because they're causing all kinds of trouble. I thought it was interesting that the first century Roman historian, Suetonius, says that the problem in Rome at the time was all of this disturbance caused by someone named Crestus, C-H, Crestus. And other historians say that's probably a garbled translation verbiage, uh, way of saying Christus, Christ. There's all of this trouble in Rome and the Jews are causing all kinds of trouble and they're causing all kinds of trouble because of Christus. doesn't matter if it's true or not uh, as far as it, it doesn't weigh huge on what we're looking at here, but I thought it was kind of interesting um, that the Jews, unbelieving Jews, would be persecuting believing Jews and what would you do if you're an outsider and you're in charge of things get those Jews out of here but by this point in time it's probably because uh, they, they would they would have been fine on their own but now Jews are becoming Christians and Jews don't like it if they're unbelievers well I thought it was interesting so I shared it with you now let's keep going it says in verse 4 And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. 
So we've seen this before. This is what the Apostle Paul does. He's reasoning in the synagogues. He starts with the Jews and let's reason with them. Let's reason with them from the Bible about Jesus being the Christ. That's where he, where he always starts things off. He's reasoning with them. Reasoning with them about the gospel, reasoning with them about the Bible, reasoning with them, connecting the dots, if you will, that Jesus, who's born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, is the long-awaited promised king. He's the one. He's reasoning with them. Now, I'm just going to take a moment here to remind you, because I haven't reminded you for five minutes, do notice he's reasoning with them, and do remember, dear Christians that the gospel is reasonable or he wouldn't have been able to be reasoning with them. And this is important for us because we sometimes forget that the Christian faith is faith in a historic person who did a historic act. He was crucified. He died. He was buried and he was raised from the dead in real time and space in history. That's why Paul could reason with them from the scriptures. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible promises. This is what happened. And so you need to believe in Jesus because he said you need to believe in me or you'll die in your sins. I'm reminding you today because the watching world and the world you engage with thinks that you believe you should take everything on faith as in close your eyes, embrace the fairy tale and jump off the cliff. That is what many, if not most people think you believe. So we, you should get good at communicating shockingly so that Christians are reasonable. Faith is in an object. Faith means trust. We're trusting in Jesus, the object of our faith, who is a historic figure, who spoke and explained the meaning of his actions, as I always like to say, died and was raised from the dead. Paul can reason about this because it's rational. It's not rationalism, but it is indeed rational. And my guess is, if you can keep in mind that your friends think you're having faith in faith, and you can help them to understand in different ways, and ways they can understand that that's not what we're talking about, we could see some great things happen. Faith is not blind trust. Faith is informed trust, as a matter of fact. Faith means trust. We trust in Jesus. He's reasoning with them. Yes, they're Jews. And he's saying, look, the Bible says this, and Jesus did this. Do you see? And he's engaging them that way. It's really important that we see this. He's not talking about a fantasy. Oh, would you all please just close your eyes and hope in hope? He's not doing that. We shouldn't do that either. Verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy arrived at Macedonia, he was with them, remember, and now they've caught up with him. Paul was occupied with the word, so he's paying close attention to the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So again, close attention to the Bible. Let me show you that these things match up. And so now apparently he doesn't need to do tent making anymore. He can pay even more attention to this. Why? Well, maybe now he's making his friends do the work while he preaches. We don't know. Or more likely, they brought support. They brought support with them so that they could be freed up 
And we could connect some dots there from what we learned in the book of Philippians, but we won't do it right now. So now he can be even more occupied, paying even more close attention to this, testifying from our, uh, from the Greek word for martyr. He's busy martyring. Well, that's not exactly the right way to understand it. He's testifying as in he believes this to be true intellectually, true, that's right, but it's also come to grip him personally. He's been converted by the truth of the gospel, and so he's witnessing, this is true, this is true, I can put my finger on the text, it's true, I can point to the historic figure, it's true, but you know what, it's also invaded my life, true, and I'm willing even to be, and now we actually are onto something, I would even be martyred for it, and he will. Because he can't unsee it. He he knows it's true on so many different fronts. And it's come to be the very thing he would be martyred for. To give testimony. To testify. I wonder what's going to happen this time. He is busy proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ. Testifying to them. Uh, making sure that they understand. And having their questions answered. And we know already that sometimes this means people believe. Sometimes this means, we saw this in Acts 17, people say, well, I'd like to know more. And sometimes it means people want to hurt you because it violates what they are already believing. I wonder what's going to happen this time. Let's not wonder any longer. Let's look. It says in verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, literally, they blasphemed him to speak against someone hoping to, to, to injure their reputation. So they're, they're, they're against him. They're opposing him. They're reviling him. Maybe they're talking about his education. Maybe they're talking and saying he's in it for the money. Maybe they're saying, you know, who knows what they're saying, but whatever it is, they're trying to discredit him. Don't believe him. Not because of objectivity, but because of character. If they're busy blaspheming him. And then it says, Paul, uh, regarding him, he took, he shook out his garments in verse six. Very Old Testament-esque. Nehemiah 5, and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. For now on, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And we're going to see he will continue to preach to Jews. But in Corinth, at this point in time, it's that moment of symbolically shaking your cloak judgment be upon you on this day it would be like me saying on october 30th 2022 in omaha nebraska you heard the gospel of the lord jesus christ and you need to believe the gospel of the lord jesus christ because if not it will be held against you you heard it here he he has one of those dramatic kind of moments okay judgment is coming i did i i delivered the message I gave you the good news and you attack my character. Very graphic display of what's happening here. There are consequences. How about verse seven then? Let's keep moving. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And we've been learning in the book of Acts that that would be uh, designating him as somebody who worships the one true God, the Jewish God. Yes, Yahweh. Yes. But he himself is not a Jew. He's a Gentile believer, if you will. And then it says his house was next door to the synagogue. How convenient. This is kind of fun. <laughs> oh, okay. So we've got this guy with a, 
a Gentile name, a Roman name even, and he happens to live next to the synagogue. He's a believer in the God of the synagogue, if you will, the Yahweh, the one true and living God, but he's not a Jew, so this is going to be intriguing. What a place to start having church when you can't go to the synagogue anymore. We're just going to have church next to the synagogue, right? Troubles are brewing is what's going to happen here. You got to love it though, right? Verse eight, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. (laughs) It's getting spicier. It's getting better. He's the guy who's in charge of the synagogue. Think he's he's the senior pastor of the synagogue, okay? And now he gets converted. What's not to love? It's no wonder in Acts 17, they said, these guys are turning the world upside down. (laughs) These guys are a problem. A problem. Together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So obviously there's going to be a conflict. Because you're either going to say, then then let's all get on board. Or, you know what, this is upsetting. This is unsettling. My kids are asking questions. Because now the senior pastor of the synagogue says, he's a Christian now. <laughs> this isn't good. We got We either have to step over there and believe with them. Or we need to put a big stop to this is what we need to do. So the city that's famous for sinning is now seeing conversions all over the place. Now, before we go into verse nine, because I know we have some beloved Presbyterians with us and God loves you and so do I. Um, but I do want to quote a Presbyterian pointing something out here that shows that the order is believe here, believe, baptize. Okay. Here we go. And I say that with some fun. But this is Guy Prentice Waters, who I think is an Orthodox Presbyterian. And I quote about this passage. The order of Luke's verbs confirms the pattern that Luke has presented throughout Acts. The gospel is preached, hearing. People believe the preached word, believing. And professing believers are baptized in the name of the triune God. How about that? Some of my dearest theological friends are Presbyterian and they sprinkle their babies and we believe in justification the same way and we're great friends, but they love to poke fun at me. And so I'm just going to quote Guy Prentice Waters. What a name too, by the way. It is an in-house debate amongst those who would believe in the solas of the Protestant Reformation and uh, we'll all have it figured out when we're in glory. Um... But in the meantime, we'll continue to debate it. All right, let's move on. Here, believe, baptized. Here, believe, baptized. Okay, verse nine. Verse nine says, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. This isn't even normal for Paul. This is extra ordinary. In a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Was it because Paul was afraid? Was it because Jesus knew that he might be afraid? Uh, was he struggling with fear? Uh, things are really heating up here. I mean, it would have been exciting. Can you imagine? A, a property just came available because somebody got converted and it's right next to, you know, our foes or those who want to hurt us. And for whatever reason, Jesus is encouraging him. He's going to encourage him. And notice how you calm anxieties. This is great to see, even for us. Verse 10, for I am with you. 
So you don't have to be paralyzed by fear. I am with you. Remember, that's actually part of the Great Commission. I am with you. So he's reminding him of what he already said in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. I had to add in my notes there, not in Corinth anyway. Right? This is, this is not a life promise forever. But for the time being, for I have many, oh, how about this? This is great. Verse 10, for I have many in this city who are my people. That, that's, that's theologically spicy and exciting. Don't be afraid. Stick to the task. Don't leave. Keep preaching in other words. And here's why. I have many people in this city who are my people. That's good. That reminds us of Acts 13. Remember back in Acts 13, 48? All those who had been appointed unto eternal life when they heard the gospel believed. It's a similar kind of idea. You need to stick to it, Paul, because I already have people in this city. They need to hear the gospel so they come to believe and are saved. But they already do belong to him in a sense. This should remind us of things that Jesus said. Jesus said things that would relate to this, not just in this passage, but before his ascension, before this vision. Listen to this, John chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So he has sheep that actually aren't his sheep yet, but they are his sheep in a certain sense. They need to hear his voice and come to him. How about John chapter 6, verse 37? All that the Father gives me, so they, they, they are his, in a sense, will come to me. Oh, Paul, stick to it, because in this city I have many people. I love it. I love it. I, I, I can't boldly say that because I haven't had a vision like this, direct revelation, but I'm always thinking about things like that. We've got to keep preaching, got to keep preaching, even if it looks like Corinth. We've got to pre- keep preaching the good news of salvation in Christ because it may very well be that the Lord has people here. Right? And we'll know that he does when they come to believe. But in Corinth, the place that might not look like he has many people, Paul, stay here, keep with it, don't be afraid. I have many people here. I love that. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Believers, unbelievers, no doubt, a year and six months. He's just teaching them the word of God. And one thing we see in the book of Acts, I hope you've caught on. The word of God is not used in a generic general sense. That would be good if he did that. It's important to teach the word of God and to preach the word of God. But it's used in the book of Acts so many times. It's a synonym for the gospel. He, he stays there a year and a half teaching them the word of God. In other words, teaching them the gospel. And you think I could learn the gospel in like 30 seconds. Yeah, but the implications, the ramifications, the significance, the fact that it's deep and wide. I don't want you to take my word for it. I won't take the time to read it, but Acts 4.4, 4, Acts 4.31, Acts 6.7, Acts 8.14, Acts 11.1, 1, Acts 12.24, Acts 13.5, and, and I stopped. The word of God, 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 synonym for gospel, 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 gospel. It reminds me of the book of Romans, which is all about the gospel. Chapter 1, 
all the way to chapter 16, he's talking about the gospel. And so there is a great sense in which a little kid can understand the gospel and you could do it in 30 seconds. The gospel is the good news about Jesus and what he's done. There you have it. That he died a substitutionary death. He's been raised from the dead, victorious, right? That he fulfilled the law. That he made atonement for sin. We, we, we can cover the gospel so quickly. It's good news. And if you believe in, believe the gospel, if you trust in Christ, you will be saved. You will be reconciled to God. The gospel is so simple. You can write it on a napkin, right? A year and six months. Gospel, 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 gospel. More so probably, at least for those who have come to believe it in a Roman sense. This implication. This ramification, security, assurance, sovereignty, justification, imputation, reconciliation, sanctification, glorification, all of these great realities that are gospel realities, year and six months. He's strengthening them. He's helping them to grow. He's loving them and helping them. Verse 12 says, but when Gallio brother to the famous philosopher Seneca, was proconsul of Achaia. So he's the Roman official given jurisdiction in that area. Uh-oh, that but when Gallio, this might not be good. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Well, now we know a little bit why why Jesus encouraged him. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Things are going to get heated. Jesus knew that. Providentially, that's all in, in, in play here. Sounds pretty serious. And let me ask you, if, if Paul is teaching things contrary to the law, would that be serious? It absolutely would be serious. And it would actually be a problem. Christians aren't anti-law. They're not anti-law of God. But sometimes people hear us that way because they don't understand. Paul's not teaching things contrary to the law. But he is saying things that would be in line with what Jesus said. I didn't come to abolish the law, Matthew 5. I came to what? I came to fulfill the law. Or or like in the book of Colossians, right? The substance belongs to Christ, Right, the, the the law anticipated, the law pointed toward, the law shadowed, and all of the mosaic system shadowed. But the substance belongs to Christ. But unbelievers hear things like that, and they they translate that as that's anti-law, that's against God's law. When in actuality, Christians are all for it. But it's Christ is the fulfillment. He's the one who met all of the obligations, and he's the one who is what it's all been looking forward to for fulfillment. But you can see why they would make the accusation. But he's not guilty of that. If he is guilty of that, then he's, a, he's got a problem. But he's not. Surely not. Verse 14 says, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, and I wrote in my margin, providence, Right? Paul's going to defend himself. He's going to explain. He's going to give him a good dose of what he said elsewhere. I'm not anti-law. Let me explain. I'm going to defend myself. And in God's providence, Paul, shut your mouth. Let the Roman leader defend you. This is cool. Who, who would have thought that? But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, this is great. 
If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. That's great. It's no wonder Jesus said, don't be afraid. I'm going to open up the Roman leader's mouth and protect you. And historically, if we think about providence, this sort of thing is important. So, Because from a human perspective, I know God is sovereign and works things out. But from a human perspective, what we don't want is Christianity to be snuffed out. In God's providence, timing is important. And he'll even use unbelievers who would otherwise persecute Christians, having them at the right place at the right time to make sure the gospel keeps getting entrenched and keeps getting the traction that it needs to get. Right guy, right place, right time, even an unbeliever. This is historic. This is a good protection of Christianity even. 16 says, and he drove them from the tribunal. Scram, get out of here, you anti-Christians says a guy who would be an anti-Christian. It's pretty good. 17, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. He's probably the one that brought the charges, right? To the Roman leader. Well, it didn't work, and so they're going to beat him. Hello. How about that? And beat him in front of the tribunal. Maybe before we read that last sentence. Maybe it's to try to, to, to gain favor. Oh, oh we're, 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 we're sorry. We're sorry, Roman leader, Gallio. And you know what? It was him. It was him all along. And so what we're going to do right here in front of you, because we want to show you that we're with you, allegiance to, to you, Roman leader. And so we're just going to beat him here right in front of you. Oh, the details. But how about the, the delicious irony? But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. I love it. They're going to try to impress him, it looks like, and he doesn't even look. Scram. (laughs) Okay, how about verse 18? After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So let me come up for air just for a moment and just acknowledge providence working. You can't make this stuff up. Who would have thought it was going to happen like this? And now Paul is safe to do ministry there. Interestingly enough, usually, you know, he gets run out of town. And now this, on this strange occasion, he's going to leave because he, he's ready to leave. Unbelievers, right place, right time for the progress of the gospel. Sometimes we're going to say unbelievers in the, the, the wrong place at the wrong time, but we do have to know no excuse for their bad behavior. But God is in charge and God is in control and he is sovereignly causing all things to work together for good like we know in Romans chapter 8. And we're seeing that happen in the book of Acts right before our very eyes in a historic narrative. Did you notice Priscilla and Aquila are coming up again and they're going to come up even again another time. They're important in Paul's ministry. Did you notice there's a change though? Now it's not Aquila and Priscilla now it's Priscilla and Aquila, and that's how it usually is. Bible commentators think it's probably because she's the prominent one. 
Maybe in their tent making business, she was the one who really was the one people wanted to go to. Um, maybe she was smarter than he was. Maybe she was more mature. We, we, we don't know. Oh, also earlier, I think we read, uh, open in the opening. He's a Jew. He's named as a Jew. And then she's just named. Uh, scholars tend to think that it's because she's not a Jew. So we have a mixed marriage. Uh, now they're going to be believe, they're believers, but one was a Jew, one was not a Jew. And you know what? God converts all kinds of people. Even people like Aquila, who married somebody, we're reading between the lines here. I wouldn't want to die on this hill. Even though Aquila, who married somebody as a Jew that he shouldn't have married. They're converted. And they're important in the, in the Apostle Paul's ministry. We're going to hear about them again. We're going to hear about them in Romans 16 and 2 Timothy chapter 4. Then it says in verse 18, at Senecrea, the Corinthian seaport, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Doesn't explain, don't know why. It's what he did. You can take the Jew out of Jerusalem, but you can't, something like that. He still tends to think in Jewish terms, apparently. There's no elaboration. There's no mandate. There's no, this is what everyone must do. But what does he do? He's making this devout commitment to the Lord. And what has he done his whole life? He makes this vow and he cuts his hair. Okay. If I tried to explain more, I would be making it up. And so is everybody else because it doesn't elaborate. Verse 19. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went to the synagogue as we might imagine, and reasoned with the Jews. And Luke expects us here to, to know what that means. What is he doing? He's preaching Christ. He's connecting the dots and trying to show them and reason with them about the Bible, that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he's doing. That's what he always does. But then verse 20 says, let's keep going. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Why? It doesn't say. Maybe it's because of the vow, because he wants to get to Jerusalem. But... Nope, I'm not staying. Now, they'll be supported later, but at this point in time, he's not staying. Uh, Timothy's going to be the pastor there in time, as a matter of fact, in Ephesus. So it's not that he doesn't care, but at this point in time, he doesn't stay. 21 says, let's go to 21. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea... So he was going to go to Syria, but now he lands not in Syria. He lands in Caesarea, maybe because of the weather, maybe change of plans. We don't know. So he lands now in Israel, Caesarea, Maritime. Uh, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed. So now we're third missionary journey. Basically, he's following up and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So now on this third journey, there are these three missionary journeys. What is he going to do? He's going to go and make them strong. I want to help you be settled. I want you to be firm. I want you to be stable. I want you to be mature. And he's going to do that by doing the same thing he did before. He's going to do that by helping them to understand the truth about Jesus and the ramifications and the breadth and the height and the depth. This, the word that he uses for strengthening is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 16, where he strengthened them according to the gospel, it says in Romans 16. 
And so as Paul's retracing his paths and he's doing follow-up, what is he doing? He's strengthening them. He's giving them really the content of what we have recorded in our Bibles in Romans. And that's how you strengthen Christians. You give them all of the implications and ramifications, strengthening them. Romans 16, 25. Now a Jew, let's go to verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. Oh, we've learned before, Alexandria is a prominent city in the Roman Empire. It's known for great scholarship. That, that's where the, the Septuagint came from, the Greek version of the Old Testament. If something happens in Alexandria, is famous for education, for, for being sophisticated, for being philosophical, for being academic. Well, guess what? This guy lives up to his hometown. He, he would make a hometown proud. <laughs> Apollos would. He came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. That makes sense. If he's from Alexandria and he's been studying the Bible, competent in the scriptures, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So what happened is, Apollos, Apollos is a a Bible guy, Apollos is a passionate guy, Apollos is articulate, he's a great preacher, but he, he didn't get the end of the story. And so everything apparently that he's saying is true, but he doesn't understand how it all ended. And so he, he knew Jesus is coming. He's the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world and some things that John preached, but he doesn't really understand how the story ends. And he needs to understand how how the story ends. It's vital and important that you understand how the story ends if you're going to be a true gospel preacher. If you're going to be a true Christian preacher, you have to make sure you can connect all of the dots. And you can't just be, you know, preaching the text and ignoring all the implications and ramifications regarding Jesus. Even though some people try to do that even today. He needs to be more informed. He needs more data. He needs more information. He needs more history. He needs more... Information again. Verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So far, so good. But but he doesn't know enough. And how about this in verse 26? Don't miss this. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Priscilla said to Aquila, guess we know who we're having over for lunch today. Right? He's a fine preacher. Oh, I really like his passion. I really like what he's saying. It's really easy to understand, profound, but easy to understand. And everything he's saying is so good, but you know what? The gospel is missing. And you can't be a good Christian preacher if you preach the biblical text while ignoring the gospel. He's ignoring the gospel because he actually doesn't know all about it. And so Priscilla and Aquila are discerning wise Christians. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God. I I like the summary. More accurately. Great. You have to appreciate the husband-wife team. Or in this case, I should say, we have to appreciate the wife-husband team. Don't make that mean more than it says, but don't make it mean less than it says. 
this is a good passage for us to, to be balanced. Don't make it mean that women should be pastors. Don't make it mean that. Read First Timothy chapter 2. But don't make it mean less than it says. In private, they take him aside and they help him understand the gospel better. Priscilla and Aquila. On more than one occasion, I'm so happy for people who know more than I did taking me aside and saying, have you ever thought about this passage? And what about this? And having to do with some pretty basic doctrines. I'm thankful for that. I'm really thankful for that. It's important that we find good, biblically informed balance. I like Priscilla and Aquila and what they do here. And I hope it helps us. 27 says, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So things are becoming formalized. The dust is still in the air in the early church, but things are settling enough where we're going to have some accountability and more concrete belonging and affirmation. And everybody's not just out doing all of their own things whenever they want to. Uh, radical independence. It's not that. Verse 27 goes on to say, when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, oh, what a good Reformation text. Who through grace and only grace had believed, he greatly helps them, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Thanks in part to Priscilla and Aquila. His preaching is better. It's more orthodox. It's patently and distinctly Christian. And we have to, in light of the narrative, have to read into it appropriately that he wouldn't have been able to do that the way he was able to do that if he hadn't gotten some theological help from Priscilla and Aquila. Ha, ah, helpful, good. And what does he do? Well, when, when he does that in verse 27 and 28, that, that sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. Absolutely it does. First Corinthians 3, 6 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So Paul's going to preach. Paulus is going to preach. They're preaching the same messages. But the Lord is the one who works through the whole process. Remember, it's possible to be eloquent. It's possible to know the Bible and preach from the Bible and not be preaching in a way that is distinctly Christian, informed by the whole story. But apparently here, it's necessary. It's actually important. So we would want to keep that in mind. When I say Corinthians, when I say Corinth, you no doubt, maybe not today, but no doubt think of first and second Corinthians. Oh, there's actually another letter too. There's a third Corinthians, but it's not in our Bible because there's a harsh letter that's talked about that doesn't exist. Must not have been inspired, but there is another one. Anyway, I digress. When you think of Corinth, you think maybe beautiful water. Maybe you think I want to go to Greece. And th there are lots of things like that. I do. But I think Bible, First and Second Corinthians, of course. That's why it's famous today. Remember, I'm going to remind you now what I started with. It used to be famous for something else. And it was famous for 
debauchery. It was famous for idolatry. It was famous for specifically sexual immorality. And so as we think about life and ministry in Omaha, Nebraska, and we think about how we can help our city, and we think about how we can help people here and around the world, we have to know that the ultimate help has to be from the gospel that saves sinners of all different types. Remember in 1 Corinthians 6, and if you don't remember, I'll remind you, he gives that list of all of those different kinds of sins, not just sexual immorality, and then he says what? And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were cleansed, and he goes on to basically say, you met the Lord Jesus Christ, and that changed everything. Ultimately, the only hope anyone has in this room or elsewhere, ultimate hope, is the hope that comes through faith in Christ who delivers us from enslavement to our sin and delivers us from the wrath of God to come. We have to remember this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time in your word. And thank you for the fact that so much of it is the same. It's so much of it is redundant. The same story, same gospel, different people, but the same kind of people. Remind us of this today so that we might be clear-headed about the gospel, so that we might be clear in our vision regarding what Omaha Bible Church exists to proclaim, and help us, Lord, to have a renewed, refreshed compassion and love for those who need to know Christ as we've come to know Christ, and we know it's only according to your grace. Thank you so much for the hope that we have in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as, as you go. Have a wonderful day.